Uh, I just want to tell you that uh, those of you who know me well know that I am not the world's biggest sports fan. Uh, I um, enjoy some sports. I, I really like the NFL a whole lot, as a matter of fact. Um, I, uh, I heard from Gene Staub this morning that football is not dead. It lives on in Canada. <laughs> right? They have a 110-yard field, 10 yards wider, 250-yard lines, and uh, no fair catch. Right? Um, and I do enjoy the, uh, the NFL a whole lot. Um, I can enjoy going to a basketball game or going to a baseball game. I probably haven't watched one on TV in a number of years. Uh, I'm not a stats guy. You know, I'm not the guy that you come to if you say, you know, I need an inside, in, I need inside information on who to pick for my fantasy team. Uh, I do not have ESPN at my house and I don't think I've ever watched an episode of SportsCenter, okay? So basically, I'm not that guy, right? I, uh, I, I do have one aspect of sports that I really like other than the NFL, and that is the highlight reel. Have you seen these? Right? They, they show you, they just, they take out, they take out, you know, of a football game, take out all the times the quarterback got sacked, uh, all the times that, uh, that, that the ball came and it just like drifted out of his fingers or, or whatever, right? And you get just the best parts of the game in like 15 seconds. It's, it's awesome. And, and, and sometimes they'll do a whole highlight reel for one particular athlete, and that's really great because then you get to see the very best uh, you know, every thunderous dunk, every great jump shot, every amazing Hail Mary pass, every incredible thing that this particular athlete has ever done. And so you get the very best of Larry Bird or Michael Jordan or Joe Montana or Tom Brady or, or uh, Peyton Manning. And in a sense, what you have in Hebrews chapter 11 is, if you'll forgive me the phrase, highlight reel footage of the Old Testament saints, where you edit out all of their sin, all of the times they screwed up in a massive way, and, and all of the times, you know, as an example with Abraham, that he lied about his wife uh, being his wife and uh, got her married off to another man, and all of those kinds of things that happened that were totally screwed up, all that's left out of the story, and you get just these beautiful, shining moments of faith, and it's great. I hope that's what God does with my story, <laughs> right? <laughs> he just edits out all of the, all the times where I augered in and cratered it, right? And I just get to tell the parts that are the highlight reels of the things that I did that were honorable. Um, and so we're going to be looking at some highlight film, if you will, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, we're going to look at four of the patriarchs, uh, beginning in verse 17. So if you found your way there, uh, read along here, verses 17 through 19 with me, and we'll find out some more about Abraham. Uh, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in, in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, 
which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, when it comes to faith, Abraham is a giant. He stands head and shoulders above almost everybody else in the, New, in the Old Testament. Uh, there, there are everybody else is a descendant of this man. And if he had not been, if he had not been a man of faith, there would have been no Moses or Elijah or Ezekiel or Isaiah to write about. And Abraham is a giant. Imagine that you and your wife, that you're over a hundred years old, uh, and um, and you are raising this miracle child. Uh, you're you are you are old enough at this point. You have a teenage kid, which you should not, by any physical means, have been able to have, and yet somehow, God enabled both you and your wife to come together and have a child when you're 100 and she's 90, and now the child is a teenager. He's almost a man. And one day, God tells a man who's old enough to be a great-grandfather who is raising his firstborn son. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is Genesis. This is God's command. Whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a sacrifice. As a burnt offering on one of the mountains about which I shall tell you. Now is that not literally the most devastating thing you can imagine God saying to you? This is the boy for whom you prayed. This is the child that God promised. This is the son through whom God said, I'm going to found through your offspring a great nation. And through his descendants are going to come a blessing to all nations. And God says, take that boy and take him to a mountaintop off to the west of where you are and kill him there on an altar and burn the body until it's consumed. Now, I can tell you this. I have four children. I have two daughters. I have two sons. And nothing would tear my heart more than watching one of them die except watching one of them die at my hand. How could you ever live with yourself knowing that you had put one of your kids to death? Even if it was an accident, how could you ever live with yourself? And this is intentional. This is the command of God. Can you imagine anything harder than this? I cannot imagine anything harder than this. I would happily give up my own life for any of my kids, and so I cannot imagine doing this. So the day after Abraham got God's command, you know what he did? He saddled his donkey. He got a load of firewood for the sacrifice. He got his son and two servants to go with him and headed west. 
he went off to the mountain that God told him to go to. And when they got to the right mountain, Abraham left the servants with the donkey, and he said this to them, and this is an indication of what he's thinking. He says, you stay here with the donkey and the supplies, and the boy and I are going to go up and worship God on the mountain. And then we are going to come back. We are going to come back. And so he puts the load of wood on his boy's shoulders, and he leaves the servants there. I think he leaves them there, by the way, so they won't interfere with what he's about to do. Because remember, this guy is like 115 years old at this point. He's not going to be winning any wrestling matches with men that are younger than him. And the text here in these verses clarifies what happened. Look at verse 17. It says, When Abraham was tested, and this is a real interesting word, he offered up Isaac. Now, I don't normally get into a lot of Greek and Hebrew words and so forth with you, but here's where the word and the verb tense that's there for the word offered makes a difference, and so I want to clarify it for you. The word offered there is in the perf- what's called the perfect tense, and, and we don't have that in English necessarily, or at least in the same way, but it designates in Greek completed action in the past. In other words, from God's perspective, as he writes about what happens with Isaac, it is, it, it is as if Abraham actually did it. It is as if Abraham actually did it, as if he went ahead all the way through and killed his son. And the rest of the verse, as you read it, makes clear that it didn't that Isaac didn't actually die. Abraham was only just about to sacrifice Isaac. But don't underestimate Abraham's faithful obedience here. The decision had already been made in Abraham's mind. The altar was already built. Isaac was already laid on top of it. And Abraham's hand was already raised up, ready to kill his son. And the knife was going to fall. And so God rates his obedience as having been completed. Even though Isaac doesn't actually die, he didn't, Abraham didn't wind up striking his son. God intervened. But look at the text with me, because it tells us why Abraham was able to go all the way there in sacrificing the one thing that he loved most in the world because God commanded and it was because he believed God's promises. He believed God's promises, and so he thought it through. Look at the text. It says that he, he remembered that God had told him, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So in other words, the promise of God requires this boy to be alive. 
He's a teenager right now. He's not been married. He does not have any kids. And yet God has told me this boy is the one through whom the promise of the mighty nation is going to come. So even though God has told me to go on this mountain and kill him, and that doesn't make any sense to me, God must be going to do something here different than what I think because he's told me it's through this kid that all the promises are coming. So how can that work? Well, verse 19 tells us that Abraham believed in the God who was able to raise the dead. He said, since, the, since this kid has to be the one, and since God has told me to go kill my son who has to be the one, God must be going to raise my son from the dead. And so that's why he tells the servants, we are going to go up and worship and we are going to come back because I believe in the God who can raise the dead is the unstated thing. I believe in the God who can raise the dead. And he says, I know God's promises, I know God's covenant, and I know God's power over even death. And so, since God can raise the dead, and He has promised me that all the promises are going to be fulfilled through Isaac, God must be going to raise my son from the dead. And so he understood, in other words, that this is a test, a hard test. A test that I'm sure involved a sleepless night the day before they left. And so verse 19 says that he, figuratively speaking, really did receive his son back from the dead. Because he was willing to do what God commanded because he believed in the God who raises the dead. Now, there are at least two things I want us to see here in that, in that part of the text. Number one, consider how very similar Abraham's story is to the cross. A father takes his beloved son, his only son, the child through whom the promise is coming of blessing to the world. He places wood on his son's shoulders and takes him to a hill where he will be put to death. And God provides a lamb as a substitute. You've got a really neat parallel between God the Father and God the Son and Abraham the Father and Isaac the Son. And in these events, God provides a lamb as a substitute. And through all of these things, the Son is raised from the dead to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And all this happens with Abraham as a shadow and a copy of the greater things that God the Father accomplished through His Son, Jesus Christ. And by the way, many people believe, many commentators believe that the same mountain on which Abraham was commanded to go and sacrifice his son was the same exact mountain where the temple was later built. 
where the blood was poured out as a sacrifice for sin. But remember, even though all things in the Scripture, especially the Old Testament, point to Jesus, point forward to Jesus, Jesus is the greater fulfillment. And, and so the resurrection from the dead happens figuratively in Isaac's case, but it happens really and truly in the case of Jesus, the Son of God. He is raised a new life to be a blessing to all nations. And a second major thing I want us to all to see is that God provided a lamb. Because God provided a lamb of which the rescue of Isaac was just a shadow, that we could likewise trust just as Abraham did in the God who raises the dead. Abraham was not worried about Isaac's fate because he knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead and would, would in doing that, fulfill all of his promises to him. And in the same way, one of the big reasons why Hebrews tells us about this incident in particular is because it wants, he wants us to be encouraged by the fact that we still believe in and still serve and are still given promises by the God who raises the dead. And, and sometimes I think that we think that the very worst thing that could happen to us is that we would be put to death. That our faith would lead us to our death. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are facing that very reality. That there are people in the Roman Empire who are seeking to put them to death as a result of their faith. And he is saying to them, without explicitly stating it, remember Abraham. And the God who raises the dead. Because if the worst thing that could happen to us is that we would die, remember that when our eyes shut for the last time in this world, we open them again in the next world in the presence of the Savior. Because we believe in the God who raises the dead to new life. Amen? We believe in the God who raises the dead. And so, there may come a day when you and I suffer for Jesus too, just like these Hebrews did. But you know what? If that day comes, you need to do just like Abraham did. You need to get up in the morning, you need to saddle up and ride off to obey God no matter what happens, because He is still the God who raises the dead. If we die, we die, but we will not stay dead. I love that old gospel song that goes, Ain't no grave gonna hold this body down. Ain't no grave. Yeah, you know, you can sing with me, right? And you gotta, you gotta have a little higher voice than I got, Okay. But, but meet me, meet me, Jesus. Meet me in the middle of the air. Going to rise and meet my Lord. Going to say goodbye to down here, right? Because there ain't no grave. Not for you and me. Why? 
Because the same God who is capable of raising the dead in Abraham's day will raise us from the dead. And the apostle to the Hebrews, I think, gives us some additional encouragement from the patriarchs in their lives in verses 20 through 22. And I want to look at those with you as well. Look at what the text says. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, the description of Isaac's blessing in verse 20 is really interesting. If you remember, remember how I told you this is the highlight reel? Uh, You get a little editing that goes on here in this story. Uh, If you remember the story, you remember that initially what happened is Jacob got his father's blessing by dressing up as his brother Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau were twin boys, but Esau was the younger, was the, I'm, I'm sorry, was the older boy. And he was also his father Isaac's favorite because he was a hunter. Sorry, it's in the text, okay? He was a hunter, and he liked to bring home the meat for dad, right? And, and so Isaac liked that. He liked to eat that wild ibex and that billy goat and whatever else, right? And, and Jacob, in contrast, was kind of a mama's boy. He was the great indoorsman, right? And kind of hung around the tent a little bit. And Isaac didn't like him as much. And he wanted to, and even though God had told him the blessing of God, the covenant of God, the blessing to all nations that comes by being a descendant of Abraham is not going to come through Esau. It's going to come through, it's going to come through Jacob. And Isaac didn't like that. And so he told Esau, well, I tell you what, I'm going to give the blessing to you, even though God told me different. Uh, He got subverted by his wife, Rebecca, who liked Jacob better and dressed him up and put him in front of Isaac. And the blessing of God came to Jacob through trickery and sin. And then later Esau gets back from the hunt and he says, hey, Dad, I brought you your, the stew that you like, and here it is. I just got in to get my blessing. And Isaac's like, uh, I already gave God's blessing to your brother and all the inheritance besides. Uh, sorry. And, and there's all of a sudden warfare between the two brothers, which, by the way, um, continued for a long time afterward. Uh, later on, though, as Isaac has time to think about this, he does prophesy over his sons again. And he announces what he should have announced in the beginning God's blessing according to the destiny of each son. One for Jacob and one for Esau. The descendants of Esau were blessed too. They just weren't blessed in the same way. Because Esau wanted nothing to do with God and the things of God, and Jacob did. 
And so the blessing went to Jacob instead of to Esau. And, and Isaac made that blessing by faith. Because he looked to the future. He saw the future plan of God. And he then made his blessing according to that. And then later on, when Jacob himself is an old man, he's finally got down to Egypt with all of his sons, and he's seen Joseph and all of the blessing that has come uh, to his family through Joseph, who his, he later found out his sons had sold into slavery down there. Imagine how that conversation went around the family dinner table, <laughs> right? You sold my boy into slavery and then lied to me about it for 25 years? I mean, can you just imagine this, right? And, and Jacob, at the end of his life, is also looking to the future. And even though he's having to lean on his cane... The word actually there is staff, so he's got a tall one, you know, one he can kind of prop his whole body up on. He's kind of leaning on it, and he prophesies over all 12 of his boys about what their future is going to be and about the destiny that God has for them because he understands that just as I received the blessing from my father Isaac, and just as Isaac received the blessing from his father Abraham, so my boys will inherit also God's blessing in the future. And though I won't live to see it, though I won't live to see it, all my boys will inherit the land that God promised. They'll get it all. And he doesn't live long enough to see it. In fact, uh, the people of Israel are there for 430 years. But Joseph, his son, also gives instructions to his family. And it's interesting. He says, and he's the only one of Jacob's sons that does this, interestingly enough. Everybody else, Jacob is buried back in the land. All the other sons of Joseph are, I mean, of the sons of Jacob are buried in Egypt. But Joseph alone says, Don't you dare bury me and my bones in this place. You get me embalmed, you get me a casket, and when you get out of this place, you take my carcass with you. You take my bones out of Egypt and you bury me in the land because God promised us that we would receive that land, and that part of His covenant with us would be that land, not this land. Here God is going to enable us to be protected and isolated and keep us from intermarrying with all the Canaanite tribes and keep us from intermarrying with the Egyptians, and He's going to protect us and enable us to become a great nation here. But I do not want to stay. And when I go to glory, I want to be going from Jerusalem. Okay, and so you get me back to Israel. You get me back to the promised land. And so for over 400 years, imagine this, the Israelites have got their settlement, 
I don't, I don't, I'm just in my mind's eye, I've got this idea of, you know, Joseph's casket like being propped up against a wall somewhere gathering dust. And people walking by and going, what's that? Well, your great, great, great grandfather, Joseph, told us we couldn't bury him here and that God would one day get us out of this place. And when we got out, we were to take his casket and his bones and bury them in the promised land. And do you know what he is? He's a testimony to generation after generation after generation of Israelites that the promise of God still stands. Even though you're in slavery now, the promise of God still stands. And one day the Deliverer is coming. And when the Deliverer comes, He will lead you out of captivity. He will walk you through the water. And then you will enter into the promised land. And one day the deliverer did in fact come. Amen. Now why are all these people brought up? Again, in the, con- the context of the whole book of Hebrews is people who are suffering for the, their faith in Jesus Christ. And he is pointing them back to these people, to the patriarchs. And saying to them, by faith Abraham did this. By faith Noah did this. By faith Enoch did this. By faith Abel did this. By faith we believe in the creation of the heavens and the earth, even though none of us were around to see it. By faith we believe in what Isaac did. And understand, and we worship the same God that he did. By faith Jacob blessed all of us. And these are Hebrews. These are descendants of Jacob. By faith we receive the blessing of God through our forefathers. And he is telling them the reason they gave us blessings is because they were pointing us to the future. And the reason that Joseph gave instruction about his bones is because he knew the promise of God will be fulfilled in the future. And he's encouraging them to trust in the God who keeps his promises, even though they're not all fulfilled yet, even though they're going to be fulfilled, not now, but in the future. And he's given them two big reasons. He says, look, you believe, even if you go to death, you believe in the God who raises the dead. Amen? Amen, we do. And even if you don't see the kingdom come in your lifetime, guess what? The kingdom's coming. And the king is coming. And we might suffer and struggle and fight through this life right now, but one day our Moses is coming. And he's better than Charlton Heston. Okay? And he's going to lead us out of slavery and out of suffering into the true promised land. Amen? We're going to have our exodus, a whole bunch of us. We're going to get out. The trumpet will blow and the archangel will shout and we will make our exodus on the day that the king comes. And then we will go home to the land that we have never seen, but which is ours by faith. Amen.
So, God's promises in His new covenant have not all been fulfilled yet. But one day our bones are leaving Egypt. And we'll get out of suffering and difficulty. But the only way you get to do that is if you stand true to your commitment to Jesus. Amen? You got to stand tall for your faith. You with me? By faith, all these people inherited all these things. And by faith, we will, interpret, we will inherit greater things than these. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light that we have been bought from the domain of darkness and, and taken into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And Father, we thank you that you are still the God who raises the dead, the God who still keeps his promises and who has never let one yet fall to the ground without being fulfilled. And so, Father, I pray that when life gets hard, when we encounter difficulty, even if we should encounter persecution, trial, imprisonment, and death as these ancient saints did. Father, I pray that we would stand firm and we would still, still keep looking for the day when the exodus will happen and we will go to be with you in the true promised land. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.